You are listening to The Path Podcast on Mountain Bike Radio. What kind of a place is this? Hi. Would you be prepared if gravity reversed itself? I, well, I... The only thing I can't figure out is how to keep the change in my pockets. I've got it. Nudity. I was here for a second this morning. You didn't straighten up the place, did you? No. Good. Because all my filth is in alphabetical order. This, for example, was under H for toy. What is it? This? It's a penis stretcher. <laughs> Welcome to another episode <laughs> of the Path Podcast. This is Nathan. This is Ock. And I'm Brendan. <laughs> <laughs> that guarantees an E. <laughs> an E rating. <laughs> yeah. So, Ben, <laughs> no need to go much further. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, unfortunately, Tawny is still uh, traveling. And so um, Brendan was kind enough to join in. So you're getting uh, myself, Ock, and Brendan today. Hi, everybody. <laughs> it's great to have you back, Brendan. Oh, thank you. Um, just to fill in anybody who hasn't listened to some of our shows in the past, Brendan is a mechanical design engineer at Felt Bicycles. Bike engineer and an ear. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he is... Uh, always brings a, some good perspective and behind-the-scenes look to see how the sausage is made. Or at least just some snarkiness. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think, as usual, Ox going to fill us in on what's going on at the path. Awesome. Thanks a lot. So our biggest sale of the year is coming up. This is the annual fall sale where you can have maybe highlight of the day barbecue from 12 to 2. Uh, at the Tustin shop on Sunday, September 24th. So it's basically all day. The sale is all day on Sunday, September 24th, runs from 10 to 5. Uh, I suspect uh, the prices are good at both shops, uh, although Tony's not here to, to verify that. I suspect you can probably work that out. But the barbecue is going to be at the Tustin shop um, on from 12 to 2. Uh, make sure you get there closer to the uh, t 12 to 1-ish time frame because I brought my family there one time at about 2.15 and there was nothing left. Get there early. There's a lot of ravenous mountain bikers. There are, there are. <laughs> so it's good times. Um, up to 50% on the shop, uh, on, on stuff at the shop. Check out the website at www.thepathbikeshop.com uh, for more details. Yeah, there there's some rad clearance um bikes out there and demo bikes getting sold. Um so definitely check out the website. I think even Ben was was eyeballing some of the clearance bikes. Yeah, for sure and I mean a lot of that stuff is is on the website and again at the at the at the fall sale, fall sale, fall sale. <laughs> September 24th um there's going to be more uh, we have ongoing, actually, 18% off all 2017 Rocky Mountain bikes in stock. That's pretty sweet, especially if they're Slayas. Slayas. <laughs> and there are Slayas. So um, 770, 750, and 730, they're out on the on the website. For example, the 770 sale price of 4755 that's a $1,000 savings. Thousand dollars and forty four. Nathan, you're a pretty big fan of the Slayer, right? I am. It. Uh, I. I thought it was one of the best pedaling enduro bikes I've ever ridden. It felt light and snappy and poppy and pedaled well, and but still seemed to be able to mob. Yeah, I've, I haven't ridden it, but I've looked at the kinematics for it, and 
it's pretty close to the kinematics that I try to design for on our long travel bikes. Nice. The the I think the look they actually well, I think it looks pretty good too. I agree. They they got some good lines on they, that bike. They did a good job with the with the paint and graphics to uh sort of make a nice cohesive shape to that to that bike. Yeah, and how they've integrated the pivots into the like very clean uh, integration on on Yeah. Yeah, the blind axles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Those look pretty cool and then um it's got like an integrated upper chain guide that it comes with so you run just like a lower taco yeah. bash. Mm-hmm. I think that's pretty sweet. Um holds a water bottle in in the cage. Um new metric shock. So the one they're not particularly long but they are slack. Mm-hmm. And the cool thing I think for really steep terrain is those particular bikes have relatively high head tubes, which I'm actually down with. You're a fan of the tall head tubes. I'm a fan of the tall head tubes. Bars high. Yeah, yeah. For the, so for super steep terrain, I think this bike's gonna do really well. My my feeling on tall head tubes is it's really easy to add stack height or buy a riser bar. It's hard to go the other way. It's hard, very hard to go the other way. You can go reverse rise, but that just makes the <laughs> gods of mountain biking cry. <laughs> uh, yes, this is true. But it does have a cool. What's the? It's got the the uh, Jason hockey mask on the top tube. Oh, does it really? I think it does. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. Nice. nice. I just got cable again, by the way. And, oh, nice. And one of the first movies I didn't actually watch it, but that came up on that cable guide thing. You know, I haven't seen it in probably seven or eight years. It was Halloween? Speaking of the Jason Hockey. Movies, oh, nice! Halloween one, not Halloween seventeen or whatever. They're <laughs> and you know, just seeing the name of that movie because that was one of the first like horror movies that I remember. Man, it made it gave me kind of the oh my gosh, oh, oh it's on. Nice. Yeah, man. I might be too young or too sheltered, but I've never seen that, that movie. I don't like scary movies. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. I'm dating myself, as as others would say. I, I really am dating myself. Yeah. So I'm, I'm suddenly remembering the scene from Arrested Development when George Michael thinks he's watching The Wizard of Oz, but he's watching Oz. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a blanket and some cowering on the couch. <laughs> oh, man. That's awesome. So, yeah, I'd have to say, yeah, that's funny that we bring up the Slayer. I was just talking to a couple guys on the trail about that. I've been riding my my Nomad around. I've been really enjoying that. And Do you have the new Nomad? I do have the new Nomad. Oh. Sand. It's khaki. Khaki. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It, it's a fun bike for sure. Uh, definitely the Slayer and the Nomad are kind of similar class. I'm telling yeah. you it's jobs. First, we got to get the jobs. Then we get the khaki nomads. <laughs> then we get the chicks. Nice. <laughs> so anyways, yeah, we were talking about the pros and cons. Um, I suspect, I don't know. I mean, I'm a big guy about flipping switches on my bikes and what have you. So, you know, the, the new nomad comes with a, uh, what, what do you call it? A rock shocks. Um, it's the coilover super with, deluxe with coil. the mm-hmm. climb switch on it. With the climb switch on it. And, you know, mm-hmm. you flip that switch and climbs like a hardtail, bro. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And like, descends like a downhill bike. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Who'd have thunk it? <laughs> Don't forget the envy wheels. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you just have to be patient when you climb that bike. Yeah. You know, I was going to do, I was actually, um, 
was climbing up a local hill. Uh, it's called um, Canyon Acres. And it's, uh, I don't know, it's probably 900 feet of climbing in mile and three quarters, maybe. It's steep. It's steep the whole way. Really steep. I, I have bad memories of that. <laughs> I try not to think about it too much. <laughs> right. And so, you know, climbing it on the Nomad, um, Nathan and I go go out and ride this up quite a bit. And usually we get about, I don't know, third way up, up the first climb, and then we start walking. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then whoever gets off first, the other one's like, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't want to be the first one. You were the better man. (laughs) You don't get 10 feet above, pass them and go, pussy! Yeah, exactly. And then get off. Exactly. (laughs) And then whisper under your breath, thank you. (laughs) So I've had enough of those experiences with Nathan on this bike already. And I don't know, I've had this for about a month and and on, on various other bikes for sure. But you know what? I cleaned Canyon Acres. No way. On the on the Nomad. Oh, um, that took some grunt. It was it wasn't pleasant, but yeah. um you know, once you get past maybe there's a there's a place where we usually get off. It's the first really steep loose. Yeah. Like if you can get past there, there's a little bit of a respite. Right. And then if you can pedal slow enough through the little bit of respite, yeah, then it just becomes can you endure? And so yeah, so I did it, and I was like, whoa! I never thought I'd be able to. <laughs> I, I actually was seriously doubting if I would have ever cleaned Canyon Acres on the Nomad, uh, which I did, and I was very pleased with myself. Nice, but what I realized was this thing doesn't climb like a hardtail. <laughs> <laughs> It's a rad bike, but it's not it's a hardtail. It's a rad bike, but it's not a hardtail. Yeah. And I think Nathan and I kind of had this conversation. You know, I think part of it, a big part of it was I was just patient with it. Yeah. You know, yeah. if you could get your heart rate under control yep. uh, and stay upright, you're going you're gonna to be fine. Yep. It'll it'll crawl. It, it will. And it, it doesn't overly penalize you. Right. Um, and so... Yeah, it was good. I suspect the Slayer might have felt a little better on the climb. Maybe. Eh, I maybe. I mean, I think the Slayer's a touch lighter, but, I mean, your bike has a coil over. The Slayer had an air shock. It's right. Like, right. Well, so, you guys are going to have to wait until April or so for the hmm. felt compulsion. Oh, oh nice. Wow. I won't say too much right now, but cool. shameless plug for my employer. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a bike in that category that... I think will be every bit as good as either of those. Ooh. Sweet. Yeah. Sweet. Looking well, forward to seeing it. We'd love to. We, we, have, uh, we have our first riding sample that we're, we're riding right now. And, uh-huh. uh, well, I, I could tell you this. Kona just released a carbon bike um, with less travel that weighs more without a shock than our frame weighs with the shock. Nice. Oh, so, very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Well, yeah, when I, I, I ran into you this weekend and your, what's your personal decree build out at? So right now it's just a hair under 26 pounds. Oh my gosh. Pounds. That's a 140 travel It's a bike. 140 rear, 150 front, dropper post, one by 11, wide wheels, wide rims that is. It's got the speed tune carbon. Oh, right, right. Wide 30, something. 32 millimeter inner width rims. Which I'm I'm loving, by the way. That's oh cool. Like finally has made the bike come alive. Yeah, 
Yeah, I wrote, I, I, I had a set of those. I enjoyed them. I appreciate them too. Yeah. Yeah. They've been great. Oh, um, dang. That's a, that's a sweet build. Surprisingly though, the bike has spent the majority of its life closer to 24 pounds. Um, right. It had some capius rims that are like 24 and a half inner. Mm. Oh, okay. Um, but crazy, crazy light. Yeah. Like probably like I get away with riding them because I'm, super lightweight and I don't push my equipment very hard, but right. Probably wouldn't work for, for the kind of enduro racing you're doing. Um, so one of the things we were talking about this, let me top two things that people should watch for weight, but don't like if they want a lightweight bike, what are some things that most people are over overlooking? Hmm. If weight's your goal. Well, I would probably say, um, tires, Right, um, and I, I, I would include like the, the tire sealing system as well. Like right. If you're running tubes, time to get into the 21st century and <laughs> set it up right. tubeless. But you know, pay attention to how, how much you do sealing. that and, yeah. and how much sealant you're putting in. Don't just squirt the bottle for three seconds and say, "Yeah, that looks about right." Right. How much do you out. put in? I squirt the bottle for about three <laughs> seconds. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, it's probably closer to two ounces. Okay, I'm a four ouncer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and again, this this happens. This has to do with weight, style of riding, right? Location of riding. I mean, the 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 styles that you've described, where you're coming home and your sidewalls are literally shredded off, like that never mm-hmm. happens to me. So. Right. It yeah, it just depends what what you need from the bike. But a 140 bike at 26 pounds sounds appealing. <laughs> yes, definitely. Totally. Definitely. Yeah. No. I've always heard it's watch your wheels, your cranks, and your frame. If you if you pay attention to your wheels, your cranks, and your frame, there's a good chance the rest of it's going to roll out pretty good. Yeah, that's that's pretty good advice. Yeah, and I mean the wheels. I think that's that's a great place. I mean, especially now with um, some pretty strong wheels, r- relatively reasonably priced at a very good weight. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, I remember in the past, you used to pick a pair of, like, XT hubs on, you know, some... <laughs> Rhino lights. Right. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, they're light. They've got light in the name. Yeah, <laughs> right? With some 14-gauge spokes, you know, straight-gauge spokes. It's like With steel this, nipples, yeah. you know. With this lightweight rim, does that mean there's a non-light one out there? <laughs> exactly. Is there just a rhino? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's amazing how much weight you can can get hidden in wheels. I mean, um, spokes, you know, yeah. when you're thinking you've got 64 of them or, or 50, 56 of them. Um, depending, yeah, um, mm-hmm. you know, a little bit of weight on each one is going to make a big difference. Yeah, so yeah, wheels. Yep, I, I think the other thing that I might add would be your pack weight is definitely something to pay attention to. You know, a lot of people are riding packless now, and right, I've always been a a big proponent of a Camelback, not only for the hydration and the consolidation of all your tools and spares and whatnot, but also the back protection. I right. definitely crashed and landed on my camelback before stood up without a scratch on me. Yeah. That being said, it is extremely liberating to ride without a pack. Right. And if you compare the weight of, you know, two 32-ounce bottles to 
the weight of a 70 ounce camelback significant on un, unloaded un it's a huge difference right yeah and you could so. be like our, our good friend uh maxwell who basically carries a small child on his back every time he goes <laughs> yeah. bike riding right that's another thing is you you start throwing in little things oh here's a pack of zip ties i'll throw that in there i mean zip ties don't weigh much but you know oh a leatherman tool yeah that could be useful you throw that in there and after right. you've done that five or six times you end up carrying around five or six pounds of dead weight that you don't really need. Right. So it's worth every month or so maybe just opening that pack, laying everything on the ground and saying, do I really need that? Do I really need this? Right. 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 I think the path, we did a, a short-lived uh, artic, uh, blog set of blog posts on what, what's in your pack. Oh, yeah. right. I think, um, I think our good friend Josh um, did that. I think Maxwell might have done that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, f- the ironic thing is Josh packs heavy. Yeah, yeah. He does. He's got quite a bit in his pack. At least mm-hmm. four ways to repair a tire. In that guy's <laughs> oh <pack>. man, <laughs> lots well. of tire repair. <laughs> so, uh, but Maxwell, on the other hand, I have heard I wasn't there for this event. Pulled out a seat collar that did not fit his bike. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that was in his pack to fix someone else's. Of bike. course, that doesn't surprise me too much. That he did, and I. I don't know. Maybe the story grows, but I think he's got more than one different seat co- size seat collar. Probably, <laughs> probably. Of all the components to to bring on a bike, and that and yet it, to actually, it actually use, and yet it actually came in use. That's yeah, that's a great story. Because I was on a well, ride. I think it was with Nathan and Tani and you know our world's fastest Indian friend who was a guest on our ride, Sanjay and and Rabi one day, and my and my seat collar broke oh wow and it really like is a, a quick release one yeah the quick release one wow. oh wow and it really is a pain yeah yeah that's <laughs> that would be a terrible ride if that one <laughs> component which is very lightweight yeah yeah breaks on you i think that's where i heard the maxwell story yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. well uh there's also been a big trend in in little sort of nifty technologies that allow you to carry all of your tools and spares on the bike as oh, opposed to right. in your pack or in your pockets. Right. 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 I think maybe specialized deserves the credit here as loath as I, as I am to give specialized <laughs> yeah. credit for anything, but their, their SWAT system yeah, where they've got tools stashed behind the water bottle inside the steer tube. James Bond style. Yeah. Right. You Hot know, box style. Big, big, box that you can fit a burrito into your down tube that kind of thing like <laughs> right um, that, a lot of people awesome. are really into that yeah, that style and you know there's pros and cons to it you are increasing the weight on the bike which from a suspension engineering standpoint the bike weighs less than you do you can think of the bike as unsprung weight whereas weight that you carry on your body is sprung weight and you can actually successfully maneuver mm-hmm. over bumps and things with a lighter bike and with that weight on your body right a little bit better to a certain extent you get to a point where having a heavy pack sort of makes you feel a little bit more passive on the bike yeah it's hard, to, right. hard to use your body and get up and move around yeah when you're when you're when you've got a monkey on your back i've i've had that issue um, so what about putting that weight a little bit lower on the bike kind of like the the, ah, the lower or? of lower center of gravity this is something that I would love to do some more investigation of I have a feeling that the I, the 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 maxim of lowering your center of gravity on a bike is a myth. Mm, and it comes busters. from the idea that 
lowering your center of gravity on a four-wheeled vehicle is a good idea, and which it is for a four-wheeled vehicle. If you can lower that center of gravity, you reduce your roll center, um, you're going to increase traction distribution over those four wheels. Lots of great benefits. On a bike, you can lean the bike. You don't have to worry about losing traction to your inside track wheels because mm-hmm. you have no inside track wheels. Um, I, I don't believe that anyone who does professional, you know, motocross or or street bike racing, I don't think any of those bikes are concerned about lowering their center of gravity as much as they are centralizing the center of gravity. Yeah, so um, when Husaberg was under the KTM reign, I, I'm not exactly sure what Husaberg's up to, but Husaberg was, a, I think, a Swedish motorcycle company that KTM bought. Hmm. And then KTM started using the Husaberg name almost as like their Skunk Works division. And they were trying out different things. And, you know, if you can visualize a motorcycle engine, if you're familiar with one, there's the transmission on the bottom and the cylinder extending to the top. It's all mm-hmm. one unit. The motor, the, you know, the motor and the transmission are intimately, it's one structure on a motorcycle. What they did is, in, and normally the crankshaft is down almost at the bottom edge of the motorcycle. Mm-hmm. They flipped the motor um, so that the piston ran front to back and then the transmission ran top to bottom thus raising the center of mass of the bike and the motor and bringing the crankshaft essentially imagine the rider sitting there the crankshaft came closer to the rider's butt by 10 inches Mm. and Mm. um, pretty much the consensus was that bike handled much more nimbly than its weight would suggest right because the mass was somewhat centralized like if you imagine like let's say a bike jumps through the air and where it's going to like rotate about right the crankshaft was getting closer to that theoretical point and it and most of the test riders that rode it really liked it sure and when you think about how you initiate a turn on a bicycle the first thing you have to do is you have to swing the wheels out to the side opposite the direction you want to go if you okay. want to turn left the first thing that you do is you push your handlebars to the right so that your wheels end up to the right of your center of mass and then you will naturally lean to the left Right, right. The okay. faster you can get your wheels out to the right, the more quickly you can initiate that lean. Right? right. And imagine if all your weight now is some position an inch off the ground, and how much harder that would be to swing those contact patches over to the right, as opposed to if the center of gra- gravity were up higher on the vehicle. Right. So, and yet we see this all the time in magazine reviews. The the manufacturer has position the shock to reduce the center of gravity height to make the bike more stable or whatever it is that they right. seem to think reducing center of gravity on a bike is good for. I right. would love to do an experiment where we strap lead weights to the bike and we could even do it in a sort of a blind test, you know, put some weight on the on the head tube or the bottom bracket or the seat cluster and then wrap those areas with duct tape so you can't really see visually where they are. And then have people go do timed runs down a downhill, right? And get their subjective opinions, get their times, get their heart rate to see how much effort they're putting into manhandling the bike. And I think if if I were a betting man, my money would be on lower center of gravity, not necessarily being the best. As much right. as centralizing the center yes. of gravity, exactly. Because mm-hmm. I saw something the other day where one of these hide the tool. 
<laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Hide the tool on the bike. Yeah. All right. Hide the tool in the hole. Right. Um, was <laughs> sticking the tool. <laughs> Awkward. What are you doing with your steer tube? <laughs> <laughs> sticking the tool in the handlebar. Yeah. So, right. Um, and I, I, I didn't know how to feel about that. They stick those tools anywhere. I feel awkward, in the crank, right? I feel the handlebar. Right now. Okay, by the way. <laughs> yes. So, <laughs> yeah. The um the physicists and the di- dynamicists would refer to it as um moment of inertia. Yep. And to a layperson, I I would describe this as imagine um you have one wheel with a heavy hub and a light rim and another wheel with a light hub and a heavy rim and you just pick them up in your hands and try to spin them back and forth and how much more effort you're going to have to do to change direction on the heavy rim bike or wheel as opposed to the light rimmed bike. The wheels can weigh the same amount, but that, you know, accelerating them in one direction and changing direction takes a lot more force when that weight is distributed out towards the rim as opposed to centralized in the hub. And it's the same thing with a bike, I think. So maybe putting the tool in the, in the end of the handlebar, um, Increases that that moment of inertia. Could increase the moment of inertia on the handlebar front fork body, right? As opposed to, I think the same company has a tool system that goes into the head tube itself, right? And that would be a lot more centralized. Take a lot less effort to start turning your handlebars, right? Accelerating them in one direction or the other. Whereas, I mean, I think you you look at like the SWAT box or whatever, or you know, I currently have my like on my commuter and, and other bikes, it seems to be that area below the bottle cage, you know, slightly above your cranks mm-hmm. is a good place to strap things onto your bike, you know, just from a space perspective. Um, that's not so much lower on the bike as much as maybe it is getting closer that, to that centralized. That could be a centralized right? area. Because it really yeah. is kind of between the, you know, trying that imaginary line between the, your, your hubs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyways, one of these days I'm going to do it. I'm going to get some lead tape and some duct tape and <laughs> right. get some test subjects and we'll get that data. Didn't, uh, there was some test that, what was it, bike radar? Someone did. Chris Porter has been experimenting with okay with lead weights, but uh, the, the position, I don't think he's been concerning himself with the position and the CG height so much as he is trying to tune the sprung weight versus unsprung weight. And who's so Chris Porter? He works for Mojo Suspension. It's a suspension tuning company in the UK, and he's right. the one who is responsible for the German maker, Nikolai's... The geometrons. Geometron geometry. Right. So geometron is sort of a collaboration between Nikolai and Chris Porter from Mojo. Right. And uh, yeah, I think he's, I mean, he's definitely a smart guy. He looks at a lot of things that no one else has been looking at. He was probably the first one in recent mountain bike history to do experiments with fork offset. So okay. he's the one who was taking 26-inch crowns and putting them on 29er forks to right. give reduced offset and might be the one responsible for transition adopting that that idea on their new line possibly yeah because i know in the marketing material lars sternberg mentions that he read an article was this article a chris porter article could be yeah okay interesting 
And so kind of along those lines, you had mentioned Eurobike. You got to throw a leg over in Nikolai? I did. And the disappointing thing is that the mountain bike test track at at Eurobike is like a hundred yards of a pump track or flow trail, but not even nothing really big. Right. Maybe a couple of rocks thrown in as a rock garden. It's just right. not a a, a useful um, platform to test a bike. It's certainly a bike with extreme geometry like the Nikolai I was on, which is made for, you know, the Swiss Alps and not right. this little tiny track on in basically like meadowlands in <laughs> in southern Germany. Right. Um that being said, the reach number on that bike was about 80 millimeters longer than the bike I'm currently on. And yet the cockpit length felt just fine to me. Um, and I'm guessing it's because the seat tube angle was so much steeper than what I'm used to. Right. And the stem was very short. And the stem was probably a 30 millimeter stem. Right. So a 30 millimeter stem, which is probably 40 millimeters shorter than your... I run a 60, but yeah, close Okay. So let's say minus 30 on the stem. And I would say your seat tube angle probably threw you forward 30. That's 60. So the bike was probably only 20 millimeters longer. Which is yeah. a lot, but it's it's eaten up by the seat tube right. and the absolutely and the stem mm-hmm. and the head tube probably a little taller. Could be tracking also tracking back towards the rider, right? Yeah, which is something you you've really you've really um, touched on something that Nathan's been exploring a lot lately with regards to that uber steep seat tube. That's right, super right. long reach, and yet. Nathan and I have had a lot of discussions over lunch about <laughs> <Yes>. this. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And 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 I mean Nathan's reasoning is sound. The idea that if a 73 degree seat angle is your ideal seat angle on level ground, then when you're climbing a five degree incline, you need 73 plus five degrees right. on your seat angle. And then push the front of the bike out to match sure. to compensate. And I, I can't really argue with that other than the idea of do I really want my bike to optimized around the five degree incline as opposed to something shallower, which might be more indicative of the majority of the time that I spend pedaling. Right. And that can be, that could be totally different for you than it could be for me. Right. The kind of riding you do. I think it's location dependent. I also think it's bike style dependent. And, um, you know, my rationale was there's let's, let's break it up into three general riding areas, climbing, flat, sending. Mm Mm-hmm. Descending really doesn't matter where the seat is. Climbing absolutely matters where the seat is and flat matters where the seat is. On an enduro bike where it's kind of hard enough to climb it up up a hill as it is, I would get take all the help I can get from the seat on the climb, compromise that out of the flats. It's not an issue on the downs. So mm-hmm. in like the pie chart, the flat of area of concern it would be the least. So right. from a preference standpoint on a bike for for that, I would tune it, not for flat ground. Sure. And and my personal preference would be that I'm willing to to endure maybe a less than ideal position on the steepest of climbs if it means I can really put power down and rail on the flowy flat stuff. And pick right. up speed there. And, right. and the way I attack that stuff is with the seat up. I'm pedaling seated for right. a lot of the stuff 
that's just sort of flat, fast flowy. Um, you know, the lower third section of Lizard Trail, for example. Right, exactly. It's sort of a false flat downhill. And I've got the seat up and I'm pedaling through all of those turns. Right, absolutely. Right. That, yeah, and that so, makes, and it's, you know, the nice thing is there's so many bikes out there, but it's it's nice. I think what, the, what we had discussed is that um, even with the extreme geometry, let's say, let's say I have made the decision that I want a bike tuned for a five degree up angle. No one's offering that yet. Right. That's still way mm-hmm. outside the norm. And, and the numbers we're talking about at that point are 78 degree seat angles. Right. And about the highest that you can get from anyone without going custom is 77, I think. Roughly. Yeah. And that and that one degree is actually making quite a bit of difference. At my saddle height, I think I capped out about thirteen millimeters per degree. Yeah, thirteen millimeters four to aft. Right. Per degree, mm-hmm. roughly half an inch. Right. Yeah, which is can be significant. So. Yeah, and it totally entirely depends on your saddle height. Yeah, and and um, you know actual seat tube angle. You know, I've I've spent quite a bit of time analyzing photos and trying to determine actual seat tube angle versus because it is sort of a made up number it, it to be is honest. it is and everyone measures it differently right and my kind of giveaway like if you're ever curious if a bike company and brendan you can see if you agree or disagree with this if the brand on their geo chart lists a different seat tube angle for every size they're compensating if it's the same seat tube angle, they're not compensating for height. Right. Most likely. So, and that's think, why, tra- like, when Transition reports their seat tube angles, they're very funky numbers. Like, they're right. ve- each they're, size is off by two tenths of a degree or something so. like yeah. that. Right. And so they're making a height, saddle height assumption for right. each. They're assuming rider. if you ride a small, your saddle height is. is 680 give or take if you ride a medium it's 720 give or take right and so on through the line right yep that's that's what i'm guessing whereas like say pole which is another one i was looking at very closely said all sizes 77.4 right and that's like that's no and that's actually the way we do it as well because i wasn't really willing to make those assumptions about the nominal saddle height for a size small for example so right on our bikes that seat tube angle measurement is based around what is the effective saddle angle or seat tube angle if you have a saddle at 750 millimeters for right. all sizes? Right. Which means that when I publish a number of 73.5, the extra large, if you're running 800, you know, it might be closer to 73.2. If you are a super small rider and you're down at the 680, it might be 74, 74 and a half right. effective. Now, going back to what you're saying about riding the Nikolai, there was another comment you made that I thought might be interesting to share. Oh, the fact that it was impossible to manual it. It was right. just getting the front wheel off the ground was a chore. Right. And um, what was the reach on the bike you were riding? 515. 515, which right. is equivalent to an, it's a little bit longer than an extra large current model, your Kona. Yeah. And the bike that I ride is a reach of 435. Right. So this is 80 millimeters longer. And it was a large and or a medium? This is a size large. Geometron. Um, Geometron. I think the G13, which is their 29 or... 130. 130 rear, 140 fork. Right. Um, 
And so the, the rear center was a little bit longer than what I'm used to. It was 445. Okay. Um, it's a 29er, which meant that there's actually more bottom bracket drop from the axles. So when you try to push the bike out from underneath you to get the front wheel up, you're, you're starting from a position where your bottom bracket, where you're pushing into the pedals, is lower than the rear axle. That makes it a lot harder to manual just, just right, right off the get-go. Then you've got a, a longer rear center, so you've got a longer lever arm that you're trying to, to exert on the rear, right. rear axle. That's, that's also disadvantageous. But I think the biggest thing is that that reach is so much longer, so the idea of being able to shift your weight back and actually right. get your butt behind those pedals is so much harder when your hands are out 80 millimeters farther in front. Right, interesting. To start with. You can only stretch your your arms and torso out so far. Right. Right. Well, and, you know, I, this is kind of part of the discussion that we've had, and Ak, I've had the same discussion as, you know, and I'm in the process of, you know, I have the transition on order, which is a super long, I and I ordered an extra large 29er. Mm-hmm. And um, I really think it would take a l- four- to five minute continuous chunky downhill or downhill with some chunkiness to tease out what that bike might do well. Yeah. That's where I would want to test is I would want, and the cool thing is Nikolai makes non-geometron bikes. They make mm-hmm. standard geometry bikes. I would love to do a test with a standard Nikolai and a geometron back to back on a five minute, like a, a long downhill. Yeah. And then note the fatigue difference. And my guess is that the bigger monster bike is going to get you to the bottom of a chunky gnarly alpine style descent right with less fatigue and that's something that chris porter has talked about exactly in his defense of his mojo geometry is the idea of you have this this longer cockpit in which you can sit more comfortably without having to worry about endoing over the front or looping out in the rear right because your your wheelbase is so much longer um that being said i think it it if you want to um do the kind of things where you're shifting all your weight to the rear axle or to the front axle your movements are going to have to be that much more exaggerated to right. tease out that effect right and i think that may be one of the reasons that we're now seeing enduro bikes with longer reach numbers and even longer wheelbases than downhill bikes is because enduro bikes are optimized for 10, 15, 20 minute descents or more. Right. Whereas and a downhill bike is optimized for a two to five minute effort. Right. Right. Very easy for the person to be doing, to be very active on that bike, very cognizant of where they're positioning their center of gravity forward to aft in order to, to maneuver the bike the way they want it to. Whereas right. someone on an enduro bike, to a certain extent, is trying to endure right. that run and survive and keep their stamina up. Right. And being able to ride a little bit more passively and be safe about it is right. more important. And not only do that 8 o'clock in the morning, but do that four more times and finish at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Cool. <coughs> so, speaking about pole... Yeah. 
Paul makes nothing but aluminum bikes. Yeah. Did Did you just glance at the aluminum article? No, I was looking for it. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. I had it in our show notes. So okay. So <laughs> yeah. So this is something Brendan and I have been chatting about throughout the week, and and we'll just fill everybody in. So Paul is uh, a bike company out of Finland that makes really aggressive geometry bikes. And I've been watching them and looking carefully at what they've been doing and reading reviews and studying their geometry charts. And um, They, really, along with Nikolai, are sort of the two fringe outliers on the really aggressive, super steep seat angle, long reach, yeah. even long rear center, yeah, crazy just, long wheelbase. Just huge bikes. Yes. Basically huge bikes. So... Um, bikes that would hang off both ends of a school bus if you had a hitch rack. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, so Paul um, recently put out, you know, let's call it an article manifesto slash piece of marketing material on Pink Bike that stirred up quite a storm. Um, cool thing about Pink Bike, there's tons of responses so you can kind of gauge what's sparking interest and sparking debate. And they came out and said, basically, we were going to make a carbon bike. We went to China. We saw the process and the manufacturing process. We feel that that is not uh, environmentally responsible. We will not be making a carbon bike. We believe that aluminum is a um, much better material for sustainability and recyclability. And thus, we are going to continue making aluminum bikes. And oh, by the way, we might have something special up our sleeve with aluminum. Stay tuned. Mm -hmm. Um, did spark a pretty heavy response. A lot of people were, yep, I'm not buying carbon stuff. I didn't want to buy carbon. Like the pink bike, I think in general does have a solid aluminum bike, 26 inch crowd. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, For sure. so I think you're preaching to the choir in that case. Um, they know their audience. They know their, yes. In that case, mm-hmm. it was a good place to post that article. Um, and anyway, it was uh, – so I found it really interesting. And I've talked to Brendan. I've talked to you about it. I've mentioned this. I was wondering when a bike company was going to play this card. The sustainability of The carbon. sustainability card, the recyclability of aluminum, yeah. the dirtiness of the carbon man- manufacturing process. Um. Anyway, it was it was a really interesting position to take. I think it was an aggressive position to take. I think one of the things is uh, you painted yourself in a little bit of a corner because this new process is going to be scrutinized more heavily, sure. right? So if you're not to s- mention when, not if, but when they go carbon in you know, <laughs> five six years, they're going to have to eat their words, right? There's going to be a little pie in the face, yeah, um, and. Uh, Yes, they're going to prob- promise that the cuttings from the carbon fiber will go into arts and crafts activities for the local school. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, Ellsworth went through a similar thing where he was promising that he was going to fund the college education of every factory worker in his carbon factory or whatever. I don't. Right? Is it so okay? Really... Just to clarify, I remember the El- the Ellsworth story. They were going to make carbon fiber in San Diego. It's now sourced in Taiwan. Is that your understanding? Uh, I think that's correct okay uh, you know i haven't followed up on it it's there's closely. been a number of companies carbon fiber manufacturing in the u.s look at the price of an envy wheel versus the price of a rim from china mm-hmm. yeah there's a huge there's a lot of labor in carbon fiber assembly 
and it's U.S. In, carbon yeah. fiber, the price difference is mostly in the labor. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, that being said, it was an aggressive move by Pohl. Um, I think I somewhat agree. I mean, yes, on the grand scheme of things, aluminum... In you, if you just look at the manufacturing process, yes, aluminum seems to be cleaner. I mean, we're not going all the way to the mining and the smelting. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> I was going to say the yeah the smelting of bauxite can be a pretty dirty process, from what I understand, and I don't know the details exactly. But major I, super fun sites throughout the world, I yeah, imagine. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and you know, there these arguments always can go on for a very lengthy time with very deep research. I, I remember. There was tons of research going out there where if you looked at the total carbon footprint, a Hummer was much more ecologically friendly than a Honda or a Toyota Prius because of the raw material sourcing and the shipping. And you know, you can you can, you can twist the numbers to you can dig really deep. Argument, really, um, the one thing that I think was a direct comment that Paul had made that I I felt was actually solid is ecological arguments and you know environmental concerns aside he brought up a really interesting point is that carbon is a molding process and typically in manufacturing when you go to a mold makes things easier and faster to make Mm. whereas carbon is a mold there's the investment of a mold yes and it's actually harder more labor intensive it's more labor intensive per unit so it's a it's a pretty odd manufacturing process in that sense and what that told me is, well, if you're going to come out with something new aluminum, not only is it going to be lighter and stiffer, it should be cheaper. <laughs> like if you're going down this yeah. road of, hey, we're going of to try to make a system, some yeah. kind of molded, repeatable mass manufacturing system mm. where you can pump out frame component, frames or frame components at a much quicker rate. Like an injection molded part, for example, you know, just spits out parts like crazy. Um, I, I remember going to an injection molding class and everybody's had those uh, Ziploc bags with a little zipper piece. Mm-hmm. And this one particular instructor at this class said, oh yeah, I saw that machine. It spits out like 500 per shot. It sounds like it's raining when the tool's running. <laughs> you know, it closes and injects those open and goes, wow. and they all come falling out. Mass mm-hmm. manufacture molding. Right. Carbon fiber, not that way. Sure. Well, on... Yeah, pretty much every bike manufacturer, save for the top three or four, is on such a small scale compared to the Ziploc baggie yes. <laughs> production volume. Right. That that argument kind of gets thrown out the window. In well, fact, you have to be looking yeah. for for molding solutions that are that are are low startup investment cost, almost you know, with as a higher priority than unit cost. To a certain extent, if you're going right. to pro- if you're going to cut molds and produce 200 frames with that mold, right? Something that cuts the f- the cost of that mold investment in half is worth a lot, right? right? Absolutely. So, my my guess on what they're they're coming out with might be an investment cast front one piece front triangle. On that, that's that's my guess from looking at the the photo of the mold that they were teasing on 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 Instagram. I think it was yeah, tw- I thought it was Twitter. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, and it's something that um, a lot of people are doing now for e bikes. E bikes have a, a 
a frame part where the motor drive unit interfaces, we call it the node, as opposed to e-bikes don't have a bottom bracket, they have a node mm. where the mo- motor attaches. Curve. And a lot of companies are finding that they can make an investment cast part here um, because the tooling can be a lot less costly than a forged part right out of metal um, so and you can you can do some some more uh, advanced fancy stuff with investment casting too right and so let's so, you want to just for people who aren't familiar run through the investment casting process so investment casting as I understand it, you're actually, you create sort of a male part of the inner shape with wax. And I can't remember exactly how, how right. the details work out, but you're using wax. You're using sand sometimes mm-hmm. to create that inner shape and then pouring molten hot aluminum into the female mold with that male part in place. And then you can right. melt away the male part and end up with a hollow structure. Correct. After yeah, and- that. And right. often there's a lot of post-machining because the part that comes out is relatively crude. Yeah. Um, since you're pouring it in, there's a possibility of having voids. That's his holes or little hollow pockets inside the structure where the metal is not continuous. So casting traditionally has to be very overbuilt compared to um, forged parts or even drawn tubes, right? Um but I know of at least one factory that is experimenting with a high-pressure casting. That is, they're forcing that mm-hmm. molten aluminum, not just pouring it and letting gravity do the work. They're actually creating positive pressure and forcing it in all the nooks and crannies to reduce the void and getting better right. solid aluminum into the part. So that may allow you to bring wall thicknesses down and reduce weight if you can be assured there's going to be no voids in that part. Right. So we could see cast frame or at least frame components. Yeah. Yeah. It's right. very possible that he end, might end up with a very complex bottom bracket shape, a complex head tube shape and a traditionally drawn tube welded between them. Right. right. But then the cost of the tube is very inexpensive because it, there's no mitering or precision. I mean, you want to cut it precision to length, but that's relatively easy. Right. That can be done fairly automated true mm-hmm. yeah that'll be you know i'm that'll be interesting to see how this this evolves over the next into the future mm-hmm. yeah it's it it's very very interesting to like i said it was it was something that i was waiting for a company to play this card yeah yeah, and yeah. It's sort of it is sort of a bit of a dirty secret that no one wants to talk about is that the fact that you there's no um, economically feasible way to recycle a carbon fiber frame right now. the The current technology that we're limited to is you can chop up a carbon fiber into smaller chunks and sort of suspend it into a plastic. As reinforcement. As as a reinforcement. So you get something that is marginally stronger, stiffer, tougher than just a standard plastic. You can't chop up a a carbon frame and inject it into a mold and make another carbon frame out of it. But you can maybe make a multi-tool handle out of it, right? Right. Or, you know, you can make shoes or 
or coffee mugs or something like that. Right. Uh, you know, think, it, can, it can be downcycled yeah. as opposed to recycled. Think chopped up, chopped up tires and playgrounds. Exactly. Kind of, that kind of thing. Kind right. of forward, what do they call it? Is they call it downcycling? That might be the, the right term for like it. I'm not that. sure. Right. It's not really recycling. Yeah. But I wonder how many, yeah. how many bikes, aluminum bikes, actually end up being recycled. That's another great, very valid question is how many of you have ever gotten to a point where you're done with your aluminum frame and you take it to a recycling center and you throw it in with the aluminum cans? Right. Most recycling centers probably won't take a frame that has paint on it, that has grease in the bottom bracket. Um, right. Bearings it's, in it still or, yeah, or maybe, whatever yeah, it might be, Yeah, maybe it's still got steel ball bearings pressed into it that are seized into the frame. I have I have never seen one of my personal bikes to the end of its life. I I had a Santa Cruz frame that I cracked and sold it on eBay as cracked, fully disclosed that this oh. is cracked. Here I'm selling it and yeah, I put it up for 20 bucks or something. I'm yeah. like, if you want to buy it, do whatever you want with it. And some guy bought it and said, "Oh, yep, it's cracked. I'm going to weld it." But it was fully right. like everybody was Everybody knew what was up with Everyone that. Everyone was holding hands on that. Huh? Uh, yeah, that was a kumbaya. <laughs> yeah. But he got a he got a frame with a shock for 120 bucks. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you can do the same thing with carbon, right? I, I know. Yeah, plenty of people are doing carbon repair. Right. Uh, Larissa had a frame that she cracked and had a friend repair it, and she kept riding it for at least a year afterward. Yeah. And then sold it to another friend, and she's riding it to this day, for all I know. Right. Um, in many ways, it might be easier to repair a carbon frame than it is a cracked aluminum frame. Right. And if once a crack starts on aluminum, you try to re-weld it and you end up just chasing the crack around. Right. Well, and you know, I would, I would be really curious to see the volume of carbon fiber used, say in the golf industry, how many volume of carbon fiber consumed in the world in golf club shafts. Mm -hmm. Right. What's the 80, 20. So where is the 80% of the, now, what's the twenty percent of carbon usage that's consuming eighty percent of the actual carbon? Right, and and I think mm-hmm. the fiber. most of the data that I've seen it's it's aerospace, right? That's where we're seeing huge amounts of carbon fiber oh, yeah. consumed. But mm-hmm. I guess my point about the golf club shaft is not only is aerospace the biggest, I bet high end bicycles are relatively small. Right. By comparison. Sure. Tenon relative to tennis rackets. Yes. The global tonnage of carbon fiber going into bicycle frames is a couple of 787s. (laughs) Right. Maybe not even one complete airplane. Who knows? Right. Or or is it a fraction? I mean, maybe it's maybe even compared to tennis rackets or golf clubs. That's what I'm saying. It's a fraction of skis, tennis rackets, golf clubs. Snowboards, uh, surfboards, yeah. Are surfboards getting? Are they mostly? I mean, fiberglass. It's still mostly fiberglass and balsa, but there are a few people doing carbon. Right. Well, and and again, like I said, this this article definitely gave me pause. But before you make your next mountain bike decision based on ecological friendliness, I mean, to that point, surfboards aren't recyclable. That's a right. resin and glass and foam. That's right. That doesn't get recycled. Very dirty process for sure. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. because it's a guy in a Hawaiian shirt sanding it in his garage doesn't make it necessarily any less harmful to the environment or to his lungs. <laughs> Probably right. an old board shaper's a little like, 
Mad Hatter-ish. <laughs> That's right. They they yeah. use respirators for a reason. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, it was an interesting standpoint. I think it's a relatively small thing. Um, I actually... So I, I was listening to Adam Carolla show recently, and I thought he made a really good point. He really rants about, um, you know, people posting these, or governments posting these signs, click it or ticket on the highway sign. He's like, why don't we just put a sign up there, say, properly inflate your tires? He's like, I wonder how many tons <laughs> exactly. of fossil fuels, if we just taught everybody to inflate their tires to the proper temperature, sure. lives saved, gas saved, accidents prevented. Right. I bet that would more than offset your next high-end mountain bike purchase. Could be, yeah. By far. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, you know, I think there's a lot of low-hanging fruit. My my personal philosophy on this and, you know, slash how do I sleep at night working for a, a bike company that puts out a lot of carbon fiber in the right. world is, you know, each of these frames is not using that much carbon comparative to a Boeing 787 the millions and millions of tennis rackets, et cetera. Um, and what it does offer is a way for people to recreate without burning fossil fuels as they do it. Right. Um, a way for people to uh, improve their health and offset global expenses in healthcare. Right. And uh, for some people, it's a way of alternative transportation. They can get to and from their job without burning fossil fuels right <laughs> that's a big thumbs up from awk yeah 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 so i mean think think about the number of mountain bikers if they didn't have a really fun to ride high performance mountain bike how many of them might be seeking that same thrill on a dirt bike and burning right. gas while they do it possibly i actually had this this is a conversation that i've had in, um you know when i was racing dirt bikes and i like dirt bikes i think they're relatively small footprint in the world Mm -hmm. but in california you can't put a license plate on a bike that didn't come that way and it hinges around emissions and i had a friend tell me what are they talking about they don't put out that emissions i was like whoa whoa time out i was like i love dirt bikes too but let's put the math on it these things are filthy (laughs) dirt bikes i don't even four strokes filthy Mm -hmm. compared to a car compared to a car that's right compared to i would say Human mass moved per mile per gallon on a dirt bike, filthy. Yeah, probably a, or, or ten times greater than. Yeah, a they're completely car, unrestricted. Least. Even the four-stroke ones pretty much aren't restricted. There's no catalytic converter. There's Nothing. very little in the way of tuning for emissions. There's no exhaust gas for circulation. There's, Most yeah. of many of them are still carbureted. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and two strokes are still out there, which are absolutely filthy and i've raced i've burned <laughs> yeah. my share of gallons of two stroke <laughs> that's right two stroke premix um but it's i mean it's just something to be aware of like it's it it is there but yes to your point yeah there's are a, filthy compared um, to bicycles the, sounds like the a philosophy TDI. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah exactly <laughs> i know it's a exactly. volkswagen <laughs> the uh the philosophy the philosophy of utilitarianism is broken up into two schools of thought. There is, I think they're called use utilitarianism and rule utilitarianism. Use utilitarianism says, what is the net cost of this one action I'm doing versus the net benefit? Whereas rule utilitarianism says, 
what's the net cost if everyone did this one action versus the net benefit, right? So you could make that argument for dirt bikes. Global scale, they're not putting out as much greenhouse gases as all the Priuses in the world. Right. Because if, there are a, a thousand times more Priuses than there are dirt bikes. Right. If we, but if, but if, uh, if, all of LA traffic was buzzing around on CRF 450s, we would not be breathing well. That's right. That's exactly. for sure. I, I remember, uh, so um, there's an article out there. I think you can dig around and find it. And um, Josh, who uh, used to work for an um, automotive journal, let's call it, automotive magazine. He still does, right? He does. He works for a different one now. Oh, okay. Um, there was an article out there and it was comparing, I think, a Ford Raptor, a Fiat 500, and a weed whacker. No, a, I think a weed whacker or maybe a blower. <laughs> maybe a, okay. And it was the emissions put out and it. And I think the Ford Raptor was the cleanest. Wow. Wow. It was, it was pretty, uh, pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah. So anyway, very interesting article. Um, but I would say those people who have carbon fiber bikes don't suddenly look in the mirror and go, I'm terrible. I bought a <laughs> consuming <No>. product. <laughs> go easy on yourself. Yeah, it's yeah. fine. <laughs> right. And so, the other thing to keep in, in, in mind is that the one thing that you can do to save the environment is keep riding the same bike you've got. Yeah. Uh, yeah that goes against my, <laughs> yeah, my, <laughs> my bottom line as a, someone trying to sell you a new bike every year, but right. Yeah keeping what you've got and keeping it maintained as opposed to scrapping it, throwing it into the trash and replacing it with something else is probably the best thing you can do. Right. That's probably true for a lot of things yeah. we use in our life, right? Mm -hmm. But um, anyway, so, in, in interesting article on Pink Bike this week and definitely stirred up a firestorm. Um, and, um, but I, I also think, and, and the, and these are some, obviously some contentious topics and they're, tons of opinions um i think there's a lot of people who would love to have an additional reason to not have to spend three thousand dollars on a frame i i remember reading that and and seeing a lot of people being like yeah that's why i don't ride carbon and thinking you know it might be a bit of a sour grapes uh, <laughs> justification if you can't afford carbon fiber my my yes my guess is the on the inside <laughs> the number one reason you're not writing carbon fibers, you can't afford it. Right. <laughs> Which is totally fine. And I, th I think there it's, you know, marginal increasing increase increases depending on the bike. But, you know, at the high end, they're stiffer. They have a little bit more pop. You know, it, they're, there's not so many carbon sure. bikes out there for absolutely no you can, reason. You can build a trail bike. It gets down near 24 pounds. Yep. <laughs> exactly. I'm very spoiled. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I I had a I had a pardon the French I had a shitty ride on a, on an aluminum bike the other day. On a, oh, nice. Okay, <laughs> yeah. but um, it wasn't the bike that made it shitty. <laughs> oh, let's let's hear the story. Literally, a pile of dog oh, poo no. on the trail that made it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so um. So, anyways, no, it was on my it was on my um aluminum Gen One. Kona Process 153. Still an awesome bike. Still an awesome bike. Uh, it's started this, you know, 
pushed the geometry discussion way far along a number of years back. And this particular aluminum bike, um, it actually weighs uh, with not a lot of attention being paid to weight, being a weight weenie. Um, it weighs very similar, if not maybe a quarter pound lighter than my uh, Nomad. Yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting. Those bikes actually didn't build up terribly. They weren't, they were modest, like comfortably weighted aluminum bikes. They yeah. weren't super heavy. Yeah, very much so. So this uh, Process 153 with, it does have carbon wheels on it, uh, but it's got a, it's got a 36, uh, Fox 36 fork on it. Uh, it's running a, a 2.5 wide trail uh, DHF front tire and um Bond Trigger SE3, that's their Super Enduro 3. I love that tire. It's a fantastic tire. <laughs> I just don't trust it in rocky terrain, but God, I love how it feels. <laughs> so supple. It is. Yeah. And for for this type of riding around here where you're not going to be doing, you know, big enduro racing, it's yep. it's a great it's a great tire. So if I'm not racing, those are going back on my patrol. Yeah. SE3s, they're they're great. Yeah. Um, Any anything SE from, right. from Bond Trigger. Right. Any right. The, the, I thought they're super enduro series. But. Right, right. And so anyways, I'm, I'm riding along and uh, riding on a renewed love affair trail here in in Laguna Wilderness. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know the official name, but... Is it Laguna Ridge Trail? I think it might be Laguna... I think you're right, Laguna Ridge Trail. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we call it TNA. Um, yeah, that's the one. Yeah. And uh, it's... Anyways, it's been a fan, fantastic few weeks that I've been back riding this trail. Um and I've been comparing it, you know, I rode the Nomad one time, I rode a tall boy down it another time, took the 153 down it and just felt really good on the 153, uh, probably third time in a week that I've, that I've ridden this trail. And, um, you know, it's, it's single track, high speed, single track up at the top and, you know, through there's, some um, you know, chicanes like chunky chicanes that you're going to cut and turns through and and I'm charging it and I managed to avoid a pile of dog poop and I'm like gosh dang it and you know going full speed ahead it's only so quick that you could make that judgment right, right? brown mm-hmm. brown poo on brown dirt short quick decision right and cuz you know if you see some of the other wildlife uh more wild wildlife uh around here it's a lot of times it's not so consistent. Right. Right. You see the mm. berries, you see the seeds, you see it's not yeah. so dark colored, not sure. so dark. So I'm like, ah, I, I missed that one. I avoided yeah. it. Charging through, feeling good. And then all of a sudden, I didn't even see it. All I see is, and the trail wasn't, the trail wasn't wet. All I see is just a brown flick. Like, oh, oh. no. And I was like, crap <laughs> literally <laughs> literally and uh and then you could see it on your tire right because the tire is is dusty except for one spot and you're like oh, that's nah. the telltale sign hmm. and, oh, that sucks and so anyways i'm still feeling really great um you know i'm not a strava addict but uh i i happened to get down and and um i checked a while later after i'd kind of cleaned myself up I got a PR on the trail. <laughs> so, nice. You know, small mercies. 
Is that a personal record or a poo run? It was a poo run. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Nice. I mean, it was crazy. It was was all over. Well, that stuff's really sticky, so it helped the traction on your tire. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. On the under, on the down tube of my frame, on the tire, on the underside of the fork. (laughs) Ah. Like up my shirt, no. you know, up the middle of my shirt. Oh, oh I'm sorry, dude. That sucks. <laughs> did at least keep it out of your mouth. You know what? I amazingly, I did. Oh, thank God. <laughs> because it didn't taste bitter. I mean, you, you know, hate to say it, but I've had that experience. <laughs> it does taste bitter. Um, it managed to get on the top of my helmet. <laughs> oh, I mean, and so I must have had it on my face. Like, it wasn't on my glasses, it wasn't in my mouth, and uh, I couldn't smell it. Oh, no. But seeing how it was everywhere else... Oh, my God. It, that sucks. So... So, I, I... Did you guys ever see the movie Outbreak? Yeah. You know when the guy accidentally, like, gets a tear in his suit, right, that right. panic look, and he gets into the room <laughs> exactly. and then detoxes when he holds his arms up and there's the sprayers? Exactly. That's, that's what I would be looking for. Oh, like, my ah, God. Ah. <laughs> I, I had to... I had to take a moment to calm myself because I'm like, oh, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. We're going <laughs> to somehow manage to get this off of my bike, yeah. off of me. I'm not going to have to throw away all my clothes. <laughs> you know, it's um, not going to be that scene in Ace Ventura. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Einhorn is a man. <laughs> oh, man. Finkel is Einhorn. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, literally, it's amazing. You know, I I didn't have paper towels or anything with me on the trail. So I'm using like Mm -hmm. bark from the eucalyptus. Yeah. And um, as long as it wasn't poison oak, it wasn't. Yeah. It was bark from the eucalyptus. That's one way to make that bad situation a (laughs) lot worse. Exactly. Yeah. So if you get down to the bottom of TNA, careful of the eucalyptus bark. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Right by the fence. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that sucks, man. I think I was, I think I remember reading that uh, Portland area mountain bikers commissioned a study on trail impact because there are many trails in that area. Right. That, and I might be confusing Portland with Marin County, California, um, because they have a similar Issue. Uh, problem where equestrians have uh, more or right. less unlimited access grandfathered in by generations and mountain bikers have to fight tooth and nail for a few miles here and a few miles there. Right. Right. Um, and of course it's for most people, it's the perception that mountain bikers are tearing up the trails. Right. Right. And uh, the, the study that they funded and of course them being funded, you have to take their results with a grain of salt. Um, concluded that uh, the two highest impact uses use cases on trails are hikers who don't follow the trail. That is, they walk off mm, trail. Sure. And dogs on the trail. Dogs will poop wherever they want with right. with a really kind of toxic, invasive. Uh, sure. Uh, yeah, yeah, ecosystem I, I that could, they bring I, in, right? You know, horses pooping on the trail. They're they're strict herbivore diet. Right. They're not going to really you know contaminate groundwater to the same effect that sure a dog will dogs chase wildlife they tear up uh, right. grasses etc right. like 
I yeah, know. I can I can attest to the uh, yeah <laughs> the toxic nature. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we've probably all ridden through horse <laughs> yeah. horse poop or cow yep. patties as well. Yep. Not nearly as traumatizing an experience. <laughs> yeah, as dog completely. Poop. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, so I was actually just waiting for myself to get sick. Ah, yeah. But yeah. the mate, so I actually, so I stopped, got control, and everything that I did, I said, okay, it's not on my gloves. Not at least not on the inside of my gloves, right? Doing the sniff test. Mm, yeah. And so just making extra care not to get it on the inside of your gloves. Because once you get on the inside of your gloves, it's everywhere, right? <laughs> right. It's Yeah. It's on your, like on your grips. It's everything you touch. So. Not fun. Not fun. But I did get back to my car. When I got back to my car, after realizing that as I'm pedaling along, it's on the inside of my, like, not on the inside, you know, it's all on the outside, but it's on the inside of my shorts. Oh, on the inseam yeah. in of my shorts. I'm like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. Like, okay, wow. so, like, guilty, guilty confessions. So I get back to my truck and I've got a whole bunch of those, like, uh, sanitary wipes, right? Like, yeah. the, the ones you use to clean surfaces, not necessarily. So, yeah. which was a, a lifesaver. So I'm wiping everything down, get everything pretty well cleaned up. I've probably got 50 of these things. Like, now they're like, covered in poo and like so mm. I put them in a plastic bag not the plastic bag up and um, I put it in the back in the bed of my truck it didn't make it home oh no okay. <laughs> it would have been one thing if the bag flew out of the truck oh no <laughs> I kid you not I'm cruising up the 133 and it's it's now by now it's like seven forty five so there's a good trail good train of traffic following me and, and we're all going uh, like sixty five oh, no. <laughs> trying and all of a sudden the plastic bag explodes in the bed of my truck boom oh just no. wind pressure just caught the wind just caught wow. the wind and literally it was like yeah fifty <laughs> little. <laughs> 50 little bombs. Oh, <laughs> no. Poo dollies. Poo dollies just flying out of the back of my truck. I felt <laughs> terrible. Oh, man. I mean, I felt... <laughs> Nothing you can do at <laughs> that point. Oh, gosh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. The lady who passed me was just, like, looking at me, just shaking her head. <laughs> I was like, sorry. <laughs> Literally, I looked out of my truck, and I was like this. Shrug your shoulders. Like, what am I supposed yeah. to do? She doesn't even know the half of it. <laughs> exactly. Oh, man. Yeah. Oh. Comedy of errors. Hey, just paying it forward. Someone was <laughs> oh, inconsiderate man. to you, pass it on. Oh, man. Yeah. I, I literally felt like, I almost feel like an, an obligation to go back and do, like, like trash pickup. <laughs> you know, go spend a yeah. couple hours walking yeah. the media and picking up trash, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyways, uh, I'm sure that's what you would be awarded if a CHP were <laughs> probably to be driving nearby. right next to me. Yeah. Oh, that sucks, uh, man. Anyways, so um, you'd be like, "It's not my fault. There was poo <laughs> on the trail." <laughs> when does it seem like a version of a curb your enthusiasm episode? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> uh, I guess the moral of the story is, if you're chasing a PR and you and you run through the pile of poo, don't slow down. You might actually get it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and keep wet wipes that in your car. The, that was the silver lining. <laughs> that was the silver lining. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. Uh, that sucks. I'm sorry, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever had that happen? 
I've been pooed on a trail, but never to that extent. To that extent. I think yeah. I would curl up on the trail and die. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be like, that's it. That was it. like, what do I do? I yeah. almost felt like just stripping down my compression shorts and riding back to my truck. I just leaving the clothes. Just leaving the clothes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Man. I would have probably considered it. Wow. Uh, I mean, like, yeah. And then you just got to detox your whole bike when you get back, like oh, Lysol and scrub yeah. brush. And... I mean, that was a great uh, telling of the story, though, by the way. <laughs> the way you teased out those details. <laughs> that was good. You, to, you kept guessing. Oh, gosh. All righty. Anyways, that's my story. Um, we're at an hour 15. Did you guys want to talk about the electronics? Or do we want to wrap it? I'm good. We can hold that to next time. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Okay. That sounds good. All right. So I guess for uh, Nathan, Brendan, and Ock, Tawny in, um, in absentia again, this is Ock saying, love the bike you ride. If you can't ride the bike you love, <laughs> love the bike you ride. <laughs>